Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital show where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by two of my favorite people in the entire world. We have Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how is New York? New York is great. Uh, huge storms, hurricane force winds, lightning, thunder. We'll be lucky if we get through the show alive at all. Well, you, I'm fine. Weather up here is great. But we have a, we have a third East Coaster with us today, brand, brand new back in Jersey, Natasha Mascarenas. How are you doing? Good. So happy I can rep Jersey every week now. The jo- jokes are going to keep coming. <laughs> uh, we've asked Natasha to bring one Jersey fact to every show. So what is our, what's our Jersey fact for the week other than it's not as good as New York? The bagels are better than New York. That's spicy. All right. That's uh, false. Before Danny can <laughs> respond, um, we have a ton to get through, and I'm actually pretty excited about this stuff because it is a varied show, and we're going to end with a whole bunch of stuff on funding rounds, so we're going right back to the heart of what we do here on Equity. But first, there is the one story that we cannot not talk about, which is TikTok, naturally. And this week, Danny, you wrote about how we should not take every TikTok buying rumor very seriously because of bankers essentially talking their books. So what's going on with uh, the information war about TikTok? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about exits and exits and exits over the next couple of weeks, whether they're IPOs, SPACs, and TikTok. So TikTok's counting down. It is August 14th when we release this show. What, we have like, what, four weeks left on the Trump-induced timeline? Yes. For when they must sell immediately or they will die. Um, and so, you know, given all the pressure that TikTok faces, uh, the bankers here are trying to generate some level of uh, a feeding frenzy for the company. Basically, I was writing earlier this week of like, look, we've heard that Twitter's rumored to be looking at them. We've heard that Apple's rumored, Google's rumored. I was joking that Oracle's rumored. I mean, they have a data center business. Like, why can't Oracle buy TikTok? <laughs> right, right. You get a TikTok. You get a, a little TikTok. bit of TikTok. But if you start to listen into some of the PR we're hearing, like Apple has, has fundamentally declared that they are not interested. So they are out. Google yeah. has demurred. Twitter has, I think, $8 billion in cash total in the company's balance sheet, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly. So it's ridiculous. And so I think it's really important to remember that like there is essentially one company here. It's called Microsoft. And Microsoft knows that it has immense control over the scale of the deal here. And unfortunately for TikTok, you know, the only way they're going to get the price that they're actually worth is to have multiple bidders at the table. That's why the bankers are doing so much work to bring them here. I don't think it's going to happen. So I I think we're going to be shocked at at what might be the final purchase price here for, for the company. It reminds me a lot of like when a company like confidentially files to go public and then it just gets scooped up immediately. Um, I always think it's such a clever way to like, I'm going to go public unless anyone takes me, looks back. And so I, that, that's kind of what this whole dilemma is reminding me of. I'm really curious though, if there is, is anyone out there who's very serious. Like I think Danny, your read's great. Off the show, off the record, we talk about some stuff that we're told by people via text and other messaging platforms of other companies that might be interested. And we're always kind of like, eh, maybe. But Danny, do you think there will be two serious bids for the company or will it come down to just being Satya with an offer and then Trump with a middle finger on the other side? I think it really becomes a question of purchase price, right? If the purchase price is near LinkedIn, you know, it's in the 20 billion plus price point. No, there's not a lot of buyers. I think if it gets down into the single digits, which which may be possible given all the dynamics here, I mean, it just crazily like a one of one deal. It's really hard to get a comp to the president of the United States has a, you know, a couple of week timeline to sell a massive multi, you know, 100 million user product. 
if if it gets into the single digits, I mean, it might be spacked, right? It could be actually picked up by a private equity firm. You know, there's all kinds of other alternatives that might show up there that we we don't normally hear about. So so it's a, it's a mix. I think it's totally dependent on the purchase price. Okay, well, the one more thing before we drop the TikTok thing, BI had some notes from kind of Yammer, which is the internal Microsoft tool. And if you haven't heard of Yammer, I think it won like the TechCrunch 50 back in the day and sold like a billion dollars. So it's kind of one of those early TC conference successes that I have stories about for another day. Anyways, there was a poll on there and Microsoft employees were surprisingly mixed about buying TikTok. I think a lot of the stuff that we've all thought about it being kind of a strategic, you know, interesting choice lands among the employee base as well. So it'd be fun to see what happens. I'm sure we'll have more soon. But Tosh, before we go, over to you. I was just going to say one of some of the employees from that story had said something along the lines of like, if you make this deal happen and Trump gets his way, you're kind of getting in bed with Trump. So that's why we don't want it to happen. And so I feel like this whole deal is going to be this huge metaphor for 2020 that we're going to have to do a shot on because it's going to trigger so many alarm bells of like antitrust, Donald Trump, coronavirus. I mean, we always do that after boomers ruined MySpace and then Facebook and then Instagram, we always knew boomers were going to ruin TikTok. I just didn't think it was going to be 2020 with this kind of method. I thought it was going to be them showing up and doing bad dances, not being like, ha <laughs> we're cutting you off. Obviously, you know, TikTok is, is the exit of the month, but there's just so many things in the docket coming up here. So I, I think the first one we have to talk about is, is Airbnb, which again, talking yes. about bankers throwing rumors around, we have more rumors. <laughs> Isn't that right, Alex? I mean, we do have more rumors, leaks or uh, however you want to kind of qualify this. Airbnb, the IPO could be back on, which is pretty big news for the year. It also could file as early as this month, which is super, super exciting. Bloomberg had this story. I'm pretty hyped about it. The question then really quickly became, how can Airbnb possibly be ready to go public when we knew they were in kind of a financial crater a couple of months ago? And I have a hypothesis about this that I want to bounce off you guys. So have you seen what's happened to like the ride sharing companies in the last couple of months on the public markets? No. I need to stop, market, stop asking stock market questions on this show because the answer is always no, we haven't seen it. <laughs> I know ride sharing is still massively down in most major cities. In fact, I believe we talked about that last week. It's still down like, what, 85%, but Eats is, is making up. So I remember some things. Okay. The point is Lyft reported its earnings this week, and they showed that they had a really bad Q2. But what they also said was, we saw rebounding ride volume, and people were excited about the recovery story more so than they were worried about the trailing results. And so I wonder if Airbnb is saying, look, you know, Q2, garbage. But if you look at June and then July, then, you know, August, maybe, you can see this relatively respectable return to form, and that's going to be the momentum on which they go public. So maybe it makes more sense than I, than I thought. Well, I think the uh, Airbnb actually released some numbers for nights booked later in the second quarter, which actually showed that they were roughly in line with results from last year, which, which in some ways isn't surprising because I've, I've had so many friends get Airbnbs in which they're doing multi-month multi rents. And so if you move from a tourism world in which you have like two, three nights to a world in which people are doing 90 days in a row, no cleaning fees, no turn, you know, turnover, um, right. it actually might not be as bad as most people think. There was that Bloomberg story two days ago or yesterday um, where it showed the quarterly revenue dropping 67%. But I'm, I'm much more on what you're saying, Danny, which is like the probably like the trick up their sleeves. Travel is coming back. We've been hearing that it's going to come back in some way that we just don't recognize it yet. And Brian Chesky had this good quote in the New York Times where he was like, it's the second founding of Airbnb. It's going to be long-term rentals. It's going to be months. And, you know, that's definitely optimistic. But yeah, just like grounding it to what I'm seeing from people and friends, 
that looks like instead of instead of signing a new lease, it's an Airbnb now. Well, I, I will say that that sounds very similar to the Second Coming of Christ, which seems a little uh... <laughs> too soon. <always. laughs> but I will say, you know, this is this this is a reminder. It is too soon. We've been waiting a long time. Two thousand years, actually. But I, I will say that I, I, it's a reminder that marketplaces work. Ultimately, the inventory is here. The customers are here. Airbnb didn't just lose its brand equity. It didn't just lose, you know, the centrifugal forces that come with being a marketplace play. And so while the marketplace may have less transaction volume today or earlier in the quarter, going forward, I imagine it's going to do very, very well. There's still no real competitors to that market. So absolutely on that. And just to throw the numbers out there so people listening have them, Q1 Airbnb revenue, $842 million. Q1 is a little bit slow for them compared to other quarters that are seasonally a little bit stronger. Adjusted loss of $341 million in Q1. Gap loss is certainly larger than that. Q2, this is where it gets kind of rough, uh, only $335 million in revenue, which is much less than $842 million on a sequential basis. And then uh, adjusted loss of $400 million, which I presume strips out the cost of laying off, I think it was 1,900 people. Uh, and then as one tiny little note on this before we move on to Palantir, because oh my, Lyft and Uber are talking again about profitability and their promises about going profitable. Kirsten and I have a piece going up about this really soon. And Lyft said because of all their layoffs and cost cutting, they can actually get to adjusted profitability more quickly at a lower ride volume. So maybe Airbnb actually looks better financially now that it has fewer people working at it, which is a sad thing to say, but talking about finances, not humans. So that's the thing. Anyways, let's move on to another company that could be going public very soon. Very exciting. This is Palantir, which is either going to take over the world and make us all slaves or is just a bunch of consultants that should be working somewhere else. Danny, what is going on? Uh, yes. So uh, the latest, latest, latest news, which seems to change every week. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we heard that they were filed, they filed confidentially with the ICC. So another one of these, you know, somehow we all know in the press that they file confidentially, which sort of defeats, it's like how everyone's in stealth mode. You know, it's not stealth mode unless people know you're in stealth mode. Right. But uh, what we heard from Bloomberg this week was that Palantir has plans to direct list in late September. And that's interesting because, you know, unlike Slack and some of the other companies, including Airbnb, have considered or have actually done a direct listing. Palantir is not as, I think, popularly well-known as a company. It's an enterprise data infrastructure play, mostly focused yes. on government. It has migrated into healthcare and other enterprises over the last couple of years. The direct listing makes less sense, except I think Palantir may well be the most secondary transacted private market company like in the Valley today. <laughs> so the, the flip side of this is actually, I think the comps have been out there for so long and there's been so many transactions. It actually might make a lot of sense. So I, I love you, Danny, but I don't follow that. Why does the preponderance of secondary transactions before the IPO or direct listing make it more reasonable for there to be a direct listing? I think, you know, anytime you do a roadshow, the whole goal is to sell the vision of the company and to convince people that there is value here at a certain price, right? You're, you're yeah. trying to convince folks that Slack should be worth X number of dollars, Palantir should be worth 20 billion, which is the valuation they've been looking at the last couple of months. The more that you've done those secondary transactions, that means there's more investors out in the real world, on Wall Street, on family offices, in big banks that have come to an opinion about what a company is worth, right? We always talk about that pop and, and the complaints that pops are now like two, three X of the valuation. And that's partly because you've done this accelerated show of like, hey, everyone in two weeks, we're all going to convince you why we're worth 40 billion bucks. Right. Um, I think that because Palantir has been so transacted from what I've heard on the secondary markets, you have maybe thousands of people who have come to an opinion of what it's worth, which means there's a lot of depth of capital that will support that price when it goes public. 
Possibly, but I don't think anyone has a good grip on the numbers because one thing that we've seen in the Palantir, you know, you know, history in the timeline of this company is they're always about to reach a billion dollars and they're always about to become profitable. And that's been true for like five years. So I'm very curious to see growth in the last couple of years, how much of the revenue is recurring, how much of it's high margin, how much of it's just services and to see what the company looks like. I am, I am incredibly excited to see what it actually is versus what we're told that it is. And I think the S1 is going to be a really great document for that. I mean, also, I feel like we've been talking about Palantir going public since like the middle of the, the second Obama administration. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been, it's been it's, so it's the long. Fifth, it's the fifth coming of Palantir's IPO. So, I have yeah. a question. I feel like with Airbnb, we talk so much about like the window where they can go public that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Does Palantir have like any reason to choose late September? Is this just another leak that's giving them another roadshow of press i, I guess I'm, I'm unsure to like try and understand why palantir picked late september allegedly I, I think there's less seasonality i think there's a couple of dynamics here one that is interesting to pay attention to is not only the u.s election which i think gets kind of the obvious correlation it's actually right. the government budgeting cycle right which starts on a I believe in august i could be wrong it's either october or november it's an october one fiscal right so by going public in september they're locking in all the contracts for the previous year before the new contracts are necessarily public, you know, and that's just one of those dynamics that, again, you're going to have to teach people a lot about because there's not a lot of technology investors who also invest in, you know, pro- government procurement startups. Really? Uh, there's not? There, there is shocked. not. There is not, Alex. But but I, I, I do think there are some, not like in seasonality in the quarterly sense where Airbnb obviously in Q1 is always really bad because it's post Christmas and no one actually travels or, or has tourism. Palantir does have seasonality, but it might be over the course of years based on budget cycles and how people procure in that in those markets. Yeah, that makes it a really attractive play for investors who are into very rock solid consistent revenue gains. That was sarcasm. That was sarcasm. Yeah, there you go. So I, have to keep, I have to start saying that. So let's before we move on from this because this is a fun a fun moment in time. Natasha, what do you think it's going to be worth? Pick a number between one billion and forty billion dollars. I'll do thirty-seven billion. Thirty-seven billion. We have a we have a Palantir bull. Danny, same question to you. One to forty. I I tend to be on the sense that the SaaS revenue is still really small, but they have a multiple that's more SaaS driven. So I'm on the smaller side. I think people are going to find that it's it's not as SaaS driven. So I'm going to say like ten to fifteen. Ten to fifteen. All right. I'll go. I'll go nine and a half after one month's trading, uh, just to be. Pessimistic. I'm so wrong. Well, you you failed the price of right, right, right. Ah, the, the price is right <laughs> rules. I can't even say basic game show names now. Price, <laughs> price, of, price is right rules. Fuck this. I don't know. I'm going to hit mean, my summer redstone <laughs> iPad button with the few button. It's time to hit just, my. You're just giving Chris so much work to remove all of your, all of your loose language and profanity, sir. I just hit a button. Okay. That's enough. Of, that's enough of a palantir. Yeah. Let, let's move on to the world's strangest company. The thing that I have known nothing about because literally our show notes is Duck Creek. That's the only words I have. So I hear that that's a keyword to trigger a conversation from Alex. That's his button on iPad, his, his custom written iPad. Now that Danny is done defaming me and my interests, <laughs> let me tell you about Duck Creek. Duck Creek is a software company based in the Boston area. It has gone previously private via a public equity firm. It has been partially spun out. It has raised its own capital and it is now going public. What's very fun about this offering is that we get to see a company price in today's market. Every IPO that happens is very fun today because the market changes so quickly. We get to learn about what investors are into, what they're not into, and we learn a lot about the appetite for growth-oriented tech shares. I bring up Duck Creek because I believe it's going to price today, kind of late Thursday, so we're going to just miss it on the show. And so tomorrow morning, when you listen to this, it may be trading. So it's a fun thing to go look and see how it's doing. 
it raised its IPO range and it seems to be getting a relatively good reception from investors. So it's going to be a fun barometer or kind of heat check if you're a basketball fan for where the public markets are today. And that should influence, I think, both Palantir and Airbnb as they approach to get a better pulse on what's going on. So I, I promised 30 seconds. How was that? No, you um, successfully convinced me why I would care about a random company. Um, I was not convinced. Danny, I thought we were going to lay off the haterade before we recorded. I, I, I'm bringing it to the table. I'm a whole person self to, 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 to this show. This is why on the, on the, on the TechCrunch Slack, Danny's icon is just a salt shaker. <laughs> it should be. It should it's be. It's not, but it should be. I'm going to move us along into a more serious part of the show, not IPO jokes and making fun of Palantir. There was a big story about a former unicorn is now a public company. So if you're familiar with Pinterest, you probably know its image, which is this kind of like, I don't know, relatively wholesome kind of women-focused platform. And then this week, some news dropped. Natasha, so what's going on with that? Yeah, so Pinterest came into our radar over discrimination in mid-June when two Black employees tweeted publicly saying they left the company over pay and equity and bias against them. So, you know, that happened. We realized it kind of broke the Pinterest bubble. Now we're hearing again this week that its former COO, whose name is Francois Broger, if I'm pronouncing it right, has spoken out and is suing the company for firing her after she complained about sexual harassment. And this is, you know, the second time Pinterest has come into the news over being a problematic company in less than two months. So naturally alarm bells are happening. The COO also hired the same lawyers that Ellen Pao, who kind of famously sued Kleiner Perkins a while back, years back, over sexual harassment, eventually lost, but did set a landmark case for for Valley and how we think about Me Too. Same lawyers. So we'll definitely be following it more. We will be. And there's a, there's a trend that I'm noticing in which companies that have a certain image and are aimed at women and are run by men often have culture problems, which now that you say it out loud, doesn't seem to be an enormous shock, but it seems to be a pattern. We're going to be following this. Uh, I read the Medium post that she wrote. It's, uh, it's very interesting and uh, it's, it's really worth the time. We will link to that in the show notes. So give it a read if you have time. It's, it's just one of those times you just, you're disappointed to learn that the internal workings of a company you thought was pretty cool turns out are not. Um, so, Yeah, the, the Me Too movement got des- and deserved so much press and attention and famous people left. Sorry, not famous people left, but horrible shitty men left companies because of these reports. And I think that narrative slowed down a lot. And this is like, again, that blog post by, by um, the COO is bringing it back. And so, I don't know, I hope, I hope we see change. I hope that, you know, if and when the allegations come to a court hearing, it'll be, it'll be interesting to track. Yeah, we will, we'll be keeping tabs on this. Expect more of that on equity as time goes along. But sadly, we have to change topics over to SPACs. SPACs have become the thing that we can't not talk about on this show. So if you're tired of SPACs, we apologize. But here's Danny with some data on SPACs. Yeah, I'm pulling this from a Financial Times article, which pulled numbers from Refinitiv, one of the data providers for a lot of SPACs. So here's some numbers that I was totally blown away by. So SPACs this year have raised $24 billion, of which almost all of it is U.S.-based. There are almost no non-U.S.-based SPACs. There's exactly $0.3 billion non-U.S.-based SPACs. And what's crazy is, is that one in five dollars raise an IPO so far this year are SPACs. 
So SPACs are 20% of the entire IPO market in the United States. So we, we've been talking about Airbnb, Palantir, a bunch of these. Hell, even Pinterest has been on the bubble for a long time around an IPO. It just blows my mind to think that the actual things raising money on the public markets today are literally non-existing companies, right? They're just literally blank check companies. So there, there's something here about, you know, what is it about the public markets that they can't invest in something real? They have to invest in something that's make-believe. Well, that's what VCs have been doing with unicorns for a very long time. So we've just kind of moved it one step further up the maturity chart. Also, I'm glad to know that Americans are leading in SPACs like we are with medical bankruptcies. Fantastic. So it, proud of it, us. We, we really lead in nothing. That's what we're really good at. It's, it's financialization. But, but you, know, and, and, you know, we can make fun of it. I do think one of the dynamics here that I've seen is, you know, the decline of the hedge fund industry over the last couple of years has led to a lot of folks from the hedge fund industry moving over into SPACs. We've seen this with Alckman. We've seen this with a bunch of other folks. I do think that there's a little bit of like, call it recycling of yes. certain financial brands where there's certain personalities in the financial world, mostly in Wall Street, mostly in New York City, which you're now seeing in the SPAC world, which should actually give a lot of people pause because none of these people have sort of done this before. Nonetheless, SPACs are very popular. They're off the charts. I think we've talked in the past. I was more skeptical of them. Well, they just keep raising goddamn money. So uh, here we are in August and <laughs> we still have four months to go. We're already 70% ahead of last year. Also from the FT, out of 145 SPACs they reviewed from 2015 through 2019, while the majority eventually closed mergers, more than two-thirds of those now trade below $10 IPO price. So we're seeing not great financial returns from these SPACs. So I'm just kind of amazed that all of a sudden people said, hey, remember that thing that was kind of crappy, like a junk bond? Let's just pour all of the world's money into it. Is this just zero interest rate policy making money super bored and therefore it's sloshing around into dumb things? Because I just don't otherwise see what the hell is going on with SPACs. I think if you have to look really, really long term, I, th I think there's this, this challenge of there's so much wealth in the private markets. There's so many companies that aren't public, right? You know, this has been the trend going on for 20 years. I, I think SPACs are just a response to the fact that um, so many companies are private and that should, they should be public. I mean, there's probably at least a thousand missing IPOs from the New York Stock Exchange. In fact, there's great data. Look it up online. I'm too lazy to do it live on a show, but there's amazing data showing that you know, the number of IPOs has declined. The total number of publicly traded companies in the United States has declined dramatically over the last 30, 40 years. And so I think SPACs are like a very weird mechanism in which people can make money. They make fees from raising a SPAC, but it's a response to the fact that there's so many private companies that really should have been public all along. So they're, they're sort of a bridge to the public markets. I think they're going to be very popular. And if some of them do hit, which I imagine some will, you know, once Wall Street bets and Robinhood gets all in on this, which they can because they're publicly traded, that's the beauty of SPACs. Imagine how many more we're going to see in 2021 and 2022. I, I like the context you gave about why SPACs make sense, but I still struggle as like, sure, these companies have been, are staying private longer, but why is it now that they're choosing to not be private anymore? I think asset prices are part of that. I mean, if you look at where the stock market was at the start of the year on the tech side and look at where we are now, we're at new fresh record highs. No one thought we were going to be here in, in you know, late April. You know, it, it was a time of fear and concern. The recession's coming, you know, winter is here. And instead, we're at all-time highs for SaaS companies. We're, you know, all-time highs for the NASDAQ. This is a great time to go out there and make some noise in the public markets. And I, I want to bring it back to what Danny said about there being a lot of money in the private side. Uh, reminding me of something I read this morning, so I pulled it up. Uh, Ron Miller covered gong.io's $200 million round. And they've been really raising money to rapid fire cadence. Uh, and they're growing really quickly to their credit. This is not dumb money. This is just a company that's being pretty aggressive and you know more, more power to them. The CEO said, and I loved this quote, there's a lot of liquidity in the market. 
There are very few investment opportunities. I think the investment community was waiting a little bit to see how the market shakes out, and they are betting on companies that could benefit long-term from the new normal, and I think we're one of them. There's a lot of money on the sidelines that's tired of getting 0.5% in the money market or equivalent, and it's desperate for some yield. And so that's going to just lead, I think, to this kind of explosion of dumb ideas called SPACs, and they're going to be a mess. Gong is a great example. Another one also from Ron Miller, uh, which we've talked about for years now, is, is Snowflake. You know, yeah. Snowflake was valued $12.5 billion. 400 million projected revenue for 2020, still private, right? And it's exactly those sorts of growth opportunities that retail investors are looking to get access to. Let's move on to other growth opportunities in retail <laughs> investors with our favorite hit or miss stock. Tesla had some news this week, Alex. Yeah. So, I mean, so to be clear, we don't talk about Tesla on the show much because we don't want to get the tweets and emails and because it's not really in our wheelhouse, but it, it sometimes it just kind of spills over into our world. And this is one of those weeks. So Tesla is going to split its shares five for one. Now, Natasha, if, if I took a dollar and I cut it up into 20 cent increments, right? And I offered them to you, how much money would you give me for those 20 cent increments in total? A dollar. Right. That's not though what Tesla shareholders have done. So on the announcement of the split, shares have rallied, I forget that I'm like 15% somewhere in there, some insane amount of money of appreciation, which is worth tens of billions of dollars. And I, I wanted this on the show because I don't understand it. I don't get why people are excited about this. I, I don't get why a split makes it more valuable. I guess, I, I guess I'm not answering your question, but I'm adding another question and let's make Danny answer both at the same Perfect. time. Um, so five for one share split means that now more people can afford Tesla stock, correct? Why does it need to be more affordable or why would Tesla want to be more affordable for the general public? Well, I think, um, again, there's so much day trading. I actually think it's all Robin Hood. I think there's an effect of people wanting, you know, Tesla stock is appreciated in a huge amount of value, right? It's what was the last share price? I want to say like $1,700, $1,800, although I might be totally an idiot. $1,631 is what I see on my browser at this time, right? So if you yep. want to buy a single share and you're not in one of these startups that handle fractional shares, you have to spend 1600 bucks, basically a, a MacBook Pro, to buy a single <laughs> share of Tesla. <laughs> And, and it is, sounds crazy, but if you divide that by five, now it's 300 bucks. Now it's like, hey, I can buy one unit, two units. We just saw Apple do the exact same thing. So Apple today, you know, also has rallied massively over the years, but Apple today is worth 461 per share. And they announced a four to one split, uh, I want to say two, three weeks ago. And so I, I think what you're seeing here is there's so much attraction to consumer companies like Apple, like Tesla, the kinds of companies that would direct list if they were going through that kind of process where, hey, they can reach out to retail investors. Retail investors have their, their you know, checks from the government. They're making money. Savings are the highest they've ever been in, in yeah. like 20 years. And they got a Robinhood account with free trading. Let's get in. Yeah. So uh, the Apple splits, August 31, four for one, the fifth split in Apple's history, if you want to know how well that company is doing. Question though, the people that are these traders that you're talking about, Danny, because I think it's a relatively good point. I think it's pretty strong. Aren't they mostly, though, on platforms that do support fractional shares? And so my question is, is there a, an indice inclusion element to this that maybe price weighted and maybe they don't want to be worth $1,600 a share? I don't know. But the real mystery is why they're worth so much more now that they're in smaller pieces. That, that's the real crazy thing. I, I, I don't get it. Um, if you guys do know, please tell us. EquityPod at TechCrunch.com. We are accepting all good emails. No bad emails, please. And with that, I think we can leave the public markets and go right into the private world, I think. Yes. Welcome. The water is warm here. Let's shake off the finance talk. Um, so, so this week I wrote a story looking into how fundraising has changed since 
the beginning of the pandemic, but also just more generally um, over the past couple of years. And I talked to a bunch of founders. They, the, the general takeaway is like Gen Z culture has entered the way that people fundraise. One person told me how they don't use pitch decks. The other person told me that they got their first check because they went to Lolita Taub, a former principal at Backstage Capital, went to her tool on Ocean, filled out the corresponding information and met their investor. And then obviously last week we talked about how a fund was put together over Zoom. So, so the way I boiled it down was that a lot of times we're seeing people take traction that they get on Twitter, the new public square of the pandemic, and turn it into a check. One example I have is, I'm sure you guys remember iMouthEye, right? Oh yeah, gosh, that was a weird couple of days on Twitter. It was a weird couple of days. It, it, it went, it got really big, crashed because it made some pretty big mistakes too. But the general like footprint it left on, I think, early stage was that a ragtag group of distributed people can get top shelf investors' attention, can get coverage from Fortune and random sub stacks and everyone overnight. And, and one of the people who was part of that campaign ended up getting more attention because of it, ended up launching a Slack group for underrepresented founders. Her company went full-time on her company. And the way she phrased her fundraising experience since has been just angel investors DMing me to tell me they're investing. So just to back up a second, you said eye mouth eye. And what we're referring to here is the the meme that was emojis that people were posting eye mouth eye on Twitter and on all sorts of the internet. It was kind of this this huge wave in our world. Yeah, it was it 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 was kind of like the statement on FOMO and hype. So I think it was around the time when Clubhouse was first launching off every like popular person in tech not i'm not salty or anything but every popular person in tech was <laughs> screenshotting their involvement in clubhouse so then i mouth i launched and was also this elusive concept and so we're seeing these elusive concepts we're seeing the people behind them kind of coming in last minute and getting the benefits of creating momentum creating hype digitally and and turning it into fundraising so the, the founder i'm talking about jeff and skolnick I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, she founded Couplet Coffee and she said that angel investors signing off on her because of her campaign with iBouth Eye has helped her get angel investing checks. The TLDR is that it's, it's, you're getting different kinds of affirmation and different mechanisms are happening in place that make first checks, landing first checks different. I mean, think about how the world has changed. You used to, in the 90s, you raised money so you could raise more money, so you could buy a bunch of servers, so you could put them in a room, so you could build a thing, so you could put it online, so you could take it public, so you could steal the money and then crash. It's a great system. I loved it. And then as technology got easier and the cloud existed and so forth, you had to build a working demo at least, and then you had to build a working product and attraction, and then you could get a check. Now it seems to have gone one step higher, which is you need to be able to command attention. And I think that's what this is describing, that not just build a product, not just put it on the internet, not to get some early data points, but can you get people to give a shit? Because there's so much stuff going on in the world. So to me, this actually follows a progression that we've been seeing since the 80s in the world of venture capital. It looks whimsical. And if you're probably over the age of 45 listening to this, you know, no worries. We get it. It's a little weird that an emoji triplet caused all this, you know discussion it caught me by surprise i was super late to it just i, I believe shakespeare wrote an uh, emoji triplet uh that was his uh sort of meter so i, I you know I, I think it's actually quite <laughs> historical alex but you know to me the that was my best joke of the day <laughs> it was like a three out of ten that is a three out of ten that's that's why i can't it, was it an iambic pentameter <laughs> joke I, I am making an iambic pentameter and he wrote couplets not triplets 
Anyways, <laughs> but I will I will say I I'll believe it. This is true in consumer, and I do think that hype matters a lot in consumer. We're seeing it. Um, I think the question is is will the next snowflake <laughs> or the next palantir? You know, when will memes be used in the enterprise side of the equation where there's actual dollars and cents at play? Because I think you know it's easy when you're just collecting email addresses on a blank website or you know, in the case of Clubhouse, you're just trying to get people onto a video chat. It's super easy, right? It is attention-based. I think when it actually comes to a value proposition as a utility, as something that people want to use, you just don't have the same level of power when it just comes to hype. I totally agree. I think that the power of memes is, is less, is because so many underrepresented founders don't even get the chance to show their value down the road. They, there's so many probably potential snowflakes that never got funded in the first place because they weren't able to break through the natural networks in place in the valley. So when I look at memes, I think their superpower as like a tool to get attention and doesn't, yeah, you can't stop proving it once you get that first check. But that's true for any startup. I, I see memes as like another example of like how venture and access to it is being democratized. And I think when we talk about democratization, I, I think, you know, here's two examples, right? So this week we have a New York City based, I guess you would call it a network. It's a platform called Conduit which was founded by two angel investors to help connect founders into VCs who particularly are operators. So they're coming with a perspective in operations, business development, sales, marketing, product, or whatever the case may be. And the idea here is, hey, instead of just getting VCs who bring capital, can you find VCs who are going to offer you a little bit more operational attention? And we've seen similar kind of startup matching tools like Lolita Taub's um, matching tool that she also launched. And I, I think, again, it's, attention is the key skill here. And it, it's true for consumers to apps as it is for founders to VCs. And then just to wrap us up, Danny, I want to talk about uh, one tiny fun round circle, the kind of creative economy or the influencer economy, however you want to describe this. It's cool. You wrote about it. Can you just give us a little bit before we go? Yeah, Circle raised a, a couple million seed from Notation Capital, which is a pre-seed seed fund here in New York. And and what they're doing is they're building a, a sort of Slack or Discord exclusively for creators looking to build out their own communities. So you know, today people use Slack or Discord or some other tools to do that, but those tools were never designed with creators in mind or community building in mind. You know, you're not in a workplace, you're not doing a live stream of a video game, very different. And so the idea with Circle is to say, hey, you know, can we create a better space so that creators can create those true fans, keep them engaged, keep them retained, make sure they drive revenue. And I think what's interesting here is you're starting to see this creative stack from everything from yes. the base layer of Substack or Pico or others, Patreon to, you know, this kind of community management, community building, engagement tools, all the way up to the top of the funnel of how do you acquire those users in the first place. And uh, you looked at it two years ago, none of this existed. Now, uh, I think we covered Carrot, that's K-A-R-A-T. If you're a creator, you can now get a, a, a card, a credit card that's uh, underwritten based off of your influence on the internet. So I think you're seeing more and more financial tools and, and power coming through these startups. Uh, and it's really interesting space to watch. I'm, I was really excited to see this round. I, I try to be part of different communities of my interests, but it always doesn't feel like enough. It feels a little janky and it feels like I can forget about this for two weeks if I don't open up the Telegraph app. I just won't pay attention to this whole community I'm a part of. So I think seeing a place where I can go more naturally and get everything with a less barrier to clicking and thinking is like a great idea. I do wonder, I think a lot of Substack hype is because we're in this beat. And so I do wonder if this like has the potential to be a huge business versus kind of a Silicon Valley popular business, which is I, fine. I think, I think you have to believe that there's going to be a hundred thousand 
small businesses, call them small business, small creators who are going to make real revenue, who are going to build their income stream off of this. And these become the platforms that run their business. It's no different than, say, Square and right. a restaurant. Uh, that's the belief. So I, the reason why I'm actually bullish on this, just to kind of wrap us up, is that Teespring has kind of made a comeback. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, and they are big on the creator economy, letting individual creators create merchandise they can sell to their fans, even smaller creators. And there's a lot of juice there. So maybe there is actually enough people that are going to financially support smaller creators to make them financially viable. It is the dream of everyone who writes or talks or paints or sings or taps a drum set to be able to do it full time. So if that can help out, I'm all for it. Uh, but we are way over time, so we got to stop. This has been Equity. I'm Alex. We have Natasha. We have Danny. And we're out of here. Bye. <laughs>